The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Tillman and Blackman basically acknowledge it means Scalia was saying the president is an officer of the United States and their answer is uh, they take the position that he got it wrong yeah he, they write in a law review article well even Homer nods you know he got it wrong and they point instead to something he wrote 40 years earlier in 1974 when he was uh, uh, at the Justice Department which cuts the other way I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 27th, 2024. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations recorded on January 25th in front of a live audience on YouTube and Zoom. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio were the great Anna Bauer and Roger Parloff. We discussed all the Section 3 litigation occurring around the country and we talked about Roger's most recent article about whether the president is or is not an officer of the United States and what Justice Scalia thought about the question. We talked about why we are waiting for the D.C. Circuit to rule on Trump's presidential immunity claim when the D.C. trial may actually start. We talked about what's going on in Fulton County Michael Roman's motion to disqualify District Attorney Fonnie Willis. And of course, we took audience questions from our material supporters on Zoom to be able to submit questions to the panel in the future. You should become a material supporter of Lawfare at lawfaremedia.org slash support. It's the Lawfare podcast, January 27th, Trump's Trials and Tribulations. What's going on in Fulton County? Roger has had quite a Section 3 week. Roger, uh, first of all, bring us up to date before we get to uh, what Judge Ludig has called your amicus brief. Okay. So the, the, the big enchilada remains the Colorado case. We're rushing forward to the February 8th argument before the Supreme Court. You know, that's the case where the Colorado State Supreme Court did disqualify Trump from the ballot. So last uh, Friday, no, Thursday, but too late for us to mention it on here, Trump filed his merits brief, 
he switched one of his arguments, which is fine. Uh, the the question presented for certain purposes was is very broad. Um, he dropped. Uh, he was going to argue about uh, this being a, a non-justiciable political question. That's not a very strong argument. He dropped that, and he'll bring up the the argument that Section Three of the Fourteenth uh, Amendment is not self-executing. You need a congressional enabling legislation. That's basically the 1869 case called Griffin's case decided by uh, uh, then Chief Justice Salmon Chase acting as a circuit judge. So um, then uh, on January 31st, which is win- next Wednesday, we'll get the um, challengers uh, merits brief and all of the amicus briefs supporting the challengers. So that's where that one stands. And it's beginning to look like we aren't going to have many other rulings before the Supreme Court rules. In Maine, you remember that the Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, back on, I think, December 28th, she disqualified Trump, but the Superior, that then was appealed to the Superior Court. The Superior Court sent it back to her saying, let's wait and see what the uh, uh, Supreme Court does. We'll have, uh, doubtless, it will address some of these questions. She and the challengers tried to appeal anyway to the uh, state Supreme Court. State Supreme Court said, no, it's now become an interlocutory appeal over which we don't have jurisdiction. So the main thing is back um, at the Secretary of State's office until after uh, the, the Supreme Court rules. Massachusetts, there was an administrative challenge there, but the commission that handles such things, I think it's something like the state ballot uh, law commission or dismissed on grounds relating to the fact that it was a primary it's sort of analogous to what Minnesota and Michigan did, that the basically they they really have no say in a primary. You can come back because it's run by the state's political party. You can come back to us when it becomes a general election issue. Illinois, uh, there's an administrative proceeding there. There's supposed to be a public hearing tomorrow. I think it's actually going to all be handled by um uh, stipulation. They're going to put in documents, basically documents from the Colorado case. And they're supposed to be, they're the administrative board. I think it's called the electoral board uh, is going to supposed to rule by January 30th. So possibly we'll have something from them. I think those are the main, the main cases. So basically at this point, are we really all the action is in the federal Supreme Court, right? Does anything that anybody else does in the meantime matter? I don't think so. Uh, You know, I can't, you know, there's so many of these things, but a a number of cases like in Oregon, in Maine, Oregon, I know that my, our readers don't like it when I say Oregon, Uh, they're they're all uh, saying, let's just let the Supreme Court uh, rule and then we'll 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 go for we'll see what's next. All right. Speaking of courts that we're waiting for, what's up with the D.C. Circuit? 
So the D.C. Circuit has still not ruled on the presidential immunity claim. Um, Don't they know that I said it would be 48 hours? I, I, it's almost I, like they're like, like they don't care. Yeah, it's been 16 days. Uh, so you're close and uh, counting, unfortunately. Uh, more importantly, it's been 49 days since December 7th, which is when uh, Trump took the appeal from Chutkin's ruling, Judge Chutkin's ruling. And so that's when the automatic stay took effect. So um, and what Ch Judge Chutkin has told us um, actually last Thursday in an order is that uh, she, she, she implied that she initially wanted to give Trump seven months time to prepare, and she wants to stick to that. And since he's not supposed to be burdened with trial preparation during this period, she plans to give him seven months. And what that means, if my calculations are right, is that it could not possibly start before April 22nd. But even that is probably too early because I haven't factored in once the D.C. Circuit rules, there will be either an attempt to that move for petition for rehearing of the panel, petition for rehearing and bank, certainly a petition for cert. There will be efforts to stay it while those are happening. I don't know if those will succeed. So we're talking about an increasingly worrisome amount uh, of delay here. And in fact, um, as Kyle Cheney, our, our friend Kyle Cheney at uh, Politico reported, this week, um, Judge uh, Chetkin has actually scheduled um, another trial for April 2nd. It's a jury trial in a uh, case of a defendant, uh, a January 6th defendant. Those cases don't usually last very long. Um, it's a uh, but it is a jury trial. So imagine maybe three days, four days. It's a it's a nine count uh, indictment, six felonies. So um, clearly that March 4th date is uh, not operational. All right. Let's talk about your uh, uh, piece that ran, I believe, yesterday morning uh, and has caused quite a stir. Uh, this is uh, a piece about what Justice Scalia and Alexander Hamilton thought about whether the president was an officer of the United States. Uh, break it down a little. Uh, what is the significance of this question? And what did you find when you looked into it? Okay. And I recommend people read the article because like all things, section three, it's gnarly, it's, it's com complicated and the safest thing is to, 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 to read that. Also, a lot of what I say there, uh, a number of things I learned from reading another article, which I recommend you read. Um, it's by a guy named James Heilpern and Michael T. Worley, and it's cited in my article. So, you know, the way things are shaping up, I think the most important argument for Trump and, and those who hope that Section 3 does not derail his candidacy uh, is the argument that Section 3 doesn't apply 
to um, presidents. And specifically, uh, the, the argument, that the most important argument there is that um, the president is not an officer of the United States. And you remember Section 3, it doesn't ban all insurrectionists from holding all offices. It bans only a special category of insurrectionists from holding some offices. And the special category is those that take an oath to support the Constitution in the process of becoming certain things. And one of those things is officer of the United States. So if the president it doesn't count as an officer of the United States, it's game over. Trump is home free. Doesn't matter if he if he engaged in insurrection. And uh, of course, that is what the district judge in the uh, the trial judge in the Colorado case held. He, he did engage in insurrection, but Section three didn't apply to him. The, the, the state Supreme Court then reversed on the law, said Section three does apply. And as a result, he is disqualified. So the most important champions of that argument that the president is not an officer of the United States are Seth Barrett Tillman and um, Josh Blackman. They've been making the argument for many years from before uh, January 6th. Uh, but the argument focuses on their interpretation of the appoint- appointments clause of the Constitution. And to cut this to, uh, a little short, basically, they feel that the appointments clause requires it, it, it means that the president, only officers of the United States are people appointed by the president. And there's actually a provision in the appointments clause that is sort of a proviso that says, or, uh, you know, we're not talking about posts uh, herein otherwise provided for. You don't usually hear that language. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact language in front of me. Anyway, Tillman and Blackman disregard that language. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with anything. What Scalia said in a 2014 concurrence, it implied that you could be an officer of the United States without being appointed by the president if your post is created in another provision of the Constitution, which is what that eight-word proviso seems to say to me. And Tillman was obviously, he thought, he recognized this, this conflicted with his whole theory. And so he wrote to Scalia and said, what do you mean by this first sentence where you say there can be officers of the United States that aren't appointed by the president? And he writes back. Everyone's shocked. They didn't think he would really write back. He writes back a short note, says, I meant exactly what I mean. For instance, president, vice president, president of the Senate pro tem, pro tempore, speaker of the House. Those are positions identified, set up in the Constitution. Anyway, uh, so this means and and Tillman and Blackman basically acknowledge it means Scalia was saying the president is an officer of the United States. And their answer is uh, they take the position that he got it wrong. Yeah, he, They write in a law review article 
Well, even Homer nods. You know, he got it wrong. And they point instead to something he wrote 40 years earlier in 1974 when he was uh, uh, at the Justice Department, head of OLC, Office of Legal Counsel, which cuts the other way. Usually, of course, uh, in my view, you would consider what somebody says when they are a justice of the Supreme Court in a formal Supreme Court ruling with the benefit of four additional decades of scholarship and uh, judicial experience, that would be the more mature view, encapsulation of their view on these on this subject. Anyway, so uh, this was news to me. I think it's news to a lot of people, even though it, it's not a scoop. Uh, it's been there in the bowels of certain law libraries for a long time. But and and Tillman has included it in his tomes on the subject, right? He's referred to it. Yes. In fact, that's where, and if you go, you can see the note, you can see a little, uh, he's been transparent about it. He has not mentioned it uh, in his amicus brief. Um, he does not even mention the eight words uh, proviso that I'm talking about in his amicus brief. Of course, amicus briefs, you're limited in space and time and, and you are a limit. You know, there's a page limit. So that could be, you know, that's that. But um, anyway, I, I thought it was interesting. And the other thing they say about in criticizing what Scalia is doing is they say, well, the appointments clause says that proviso I'm talking, it says something to the effect that other than appointments otherwise uh, herein provided for. And they're saying appointments. So what did Scalia think? That the president is appointed? And, and so they're asking this pointedly, like, uh, uh, that's absurd. Obviously, the president isn't appointed. And that's where this other article comes in by James Heilpern and Michael Worley. And they do research, including something called corpus linguistics research, where you use computers to uh, search databases to find out how words were used at certain times in our history. You know, you, you look up legal documents, look up um, uh, newspapers, and they found uh, that looking in the 1780s, that the words in both formal and colloquial contexts, that the words appointment and uh, election were used interchangeably at that time. And they actually found Madison, James Madison, during the constitutional conventions of 1788, talking about, should we have uh, the, the, the president appointed by the entire population, or should we have the president appointed by, in effect, an electoral college? And in both cases, he says appoint, not election. And anyway, it's not the only example. There's other examples from George Washington and John Adams. He actually mentions uh, the original, the Articles of Confederation use. That's a formal context that I don't mention in my piece, but it's in his piece. In the predecessor to the appointments clause, Article 9 of the uh, Articles of Confederate. It's a very impressive article they've written, I think. Obviously, Seth and uh, uh, Tillman and uh, 
uh, Josh Barrett do not think so. They've written uh, some criticisms of, of that article. Um, but uh, anyway, that's the gist of my article that both Alexander Hamilton. Well, I haven't even mentioned Hamilton. Yeah, well, we'll, but, we'll, we'll yeah. let ha- we'll we'll give Hamilton a break. If you want to figure want the Hamilton stuff, you're going to have to go to the article itself. So that's quite a teaser. Yeah. So, you know, find out what Hamilton thought about whether the president <laughs> was an officer of the United States. You can get it in lawfare. So, Roger, uh, what has the response been uh, to this article, um, particularly from uh, uh, Tillman and Blackman, but from others as well? Well, Blackman wrote a post on the Volokh section of reason. So I would look that up. Um, I don't want to mischaracterize it. It's almost entirely, I think I can say this without fear of mischaracterizing it, it's almost entirely focused on the appoint-elect usage issue. That's right. um, Not on the what Scalia thought issue, right? That's right. I think that's safe. And then later, the two of them wrote another article in the same place called the Section 3 end game. We're in the section three end game. It doesn't mention my article, but it, I don't, it mentions, you might want to read that too for their views. And, um, and then other than them, I've gotten positive, uh, reaction. I, a judge Ludig was very, uh, interested in it. And he wrote a, uh, 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 Twitter thread or X thread about it. So, all right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, from the high constitutional theory uh, and the first impression understanding of uh, Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, let's go to the tawdry uh, divorce proceedings of uh, the Wade family. Anna Bauer, I'm sort of joking about that, but only sort of uh, bring us up to speed on what has happened since we last talked in Fulton County uh, with this uh, different form of disqualification motion. Yeah, it's it certainly uh, was not something that I expected when I started reporting on the criminal prosecutions of Donald Trump that I would end up in Cobb County Superior Court divorce court. Um, but that is that is where uh, this case took me on on Monday. So we have this uh, Mike Roman motion to disqualify, which we've talked about before. But just to remind everyone, uh, it's been alleged that there is an, a so-called improper romantic relationship between Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade and Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, and that as a result of that relationship, Fonnie Willis uh, received, you know, indirect financial benefits in the form of uh, Nathan Wade paying for vacations. Um, there are some bank statements in the case that were uh, uh, attached to uh, a filing regarding the divorce case that seems to support the idea that potentially Nathan Wade did pay for some some flights that Fonnie Willis joined him on. But it's really unclear, you know, to what extent there might have been reimbursements for 
for those payments or, you know, what the nature was of, of those uh, travels. And so uh, we have this motion to disqualify. There's an ongoing divorce case involving Nathan Wade's estranged uh, wife. Her name is Joycelyn Wade. I'm actually not sure if the pronunciation is Jocelyn or Joycelyn. It's uh, because the spelling suggests maybe Joycelyn, but it could be pronounced Jocelyn. Uh, So sorry if I am pronouncing that incorrectly. But on Monday, we had this hearing that the judge set in that divorce case because uh, uh, Joycelyn Wade attempted to subpoena Fonnie Willis to sit for a deposition and and that would have been relevant to what's going on in the criminal case because uh, it's very likely that the questions would have related to the nature of her relationship with or alleged relationship with Nathan Wade and and you know how he potentially is spending his money with respect to uh, Fonnie Willis uh, as a result of that alleged re- relationship. Uh, so the judge had to decide whether Fonnie Willis was going to sit for a deposition, uh, and then he also um, uh, was deciding whether to unseal the divorce records, which had previously been sealed as the result of a consent order. Uh, the judge ended up deciding to unseal the divorce records. He agreed with the argument made by Ashley Merchant, who is Mike Roman's counsel, who intervened and said that uh, the the case had not been properly sealed because there was never a hearing on it. Uh, so the judge undid the sealing um, and those files became public. Um, I I went through them, but they did not seem to show any additional, you know, information about any alleged financial or romantic impropriety between Bonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. Um, and then also the judge decided that for right now, Fonnie Willis does not have to sit for a deposition in the case. Instead, there is a temporary hearing on the 31st. Uh, the judge acknowledged that, you know, potentially Nathan Wade could could sit for testimony during that hearing. Uh, and in fact, Joycelyn Wade's team has suggested that they intend to call Nathan Wade at that hearing to ask him about his conduct and his finances of course, all of this is, is I think, incredibly unpleasant to even discuss because it involves people's personal affairs uh, and is not typically, you know, in our area uh, at Lawfare. Um, but it some of it does relate to what's going on with the Mike Roman motion to disqualify. So uh, it, it, that is what happened earlier this week. Um, and then today there's news that Uh, First, CNN has reported that it's expected that at the motion to disqualify hearing on February 15th, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade are expected to receive subpoenas to appear and testify at that hearing. Uh, and, And then also we learned that Donald Trump has adopted the motion to disqualify made by Mike Roman. Uh, and he also added this supplemental argument in which he pointed to the speech Fonnie Willis made at a church in Atlanta in which she uh, raised questions about whether there's a, uh, a racial element to the response that folks have had uh, about her hiring of Nathan Wade. So that, I think, is a good summary of what's going on on the on the Fulton County front. Um, I also there's also a hearing that was today that doesn't relate to the um, 
divorce. Yeah, uh, so we'll come back. Yeah. We'll come back to the hearing today. But so what we're expecting, just to be clear, is Wade will have to testify in the divorce proceeding, presumably about his relationship with her. She has to file a response by the second, I believe. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have an evidentiary hearing at which both will have to testify in the criminal matter on the 15th. Two on, caveat- the dis- yes. on the disqualification question. Yes. But two caveats to that. One is that uh, although it's it's been suggested that Nathan Wade uh, will be asked to testify at that divorce hearing on the 31st, I my area of of legal knowledge does not really go to family law or divorce court in Georgia. Um, that's uh, so I, I don't yeah, want to claim Roger's the of- expert on <laughs> divorce law I- <laughs> in, in, in Georgia. Uh, we, you and I don't know anything, but he used right. to practice in that area. But I, I will say that uh, from speaking to family lawyers about this, you know, it's a temporary hearing, meaning that it's a hearing that's usually about like a before parties have reached any kind of settlement or there's a final hearing date set uh, in, in terms of, you know, a kind of trial or proceeding about the about the divorce. You usually c- can have this temporary hearing that's kind of about the interim arrangements between the parties in the meantime. Uh, and, and at that hearing, you know, the questioning is a little bit more limited in scope. So it would, uh, you know, be about his finances and what he's, what, you know, what he should be paying in the meantime, if he does, you know, need to be paying more to Joycelyn Wade or not and, and that kind of thing. So it may be, you know, that, that the scope of the questioning will be a little bit more limited than it would be in, you know, at this evidentiary hearing on the 15th. And as to that hearing, I need to do a little bit more research on what some of the privilege uh, or kind of prosecutorial, you know, immunity privileges that could be raised under Georgia law uh, in an effort to maybe have Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade avoid uh, testifying at that hearing. Um, Of course, they could, you know, plead the Fifth Amendment. uh, if they or invoke the fifth, but I think that that would be yeah, something hard, that would be unthinkable. Hard to, to imagine that they could yeah. actually do that consistent with keeping their jobs. Exactly. But but we're what we're sure of is that there will be a hearing on the fifteenth, and that she will file her brief in opposition on the second. Yes, I mean it's possible that they could file something before the second, but. I expect that, especially given that that hearing where Nathan Wade is expected to testify is on the 31st, it seems very likely to me that maybe they will wait to see, you know, what the scope of the questioning is on the 31st and what happens at that hearing so that they kind of can make a response that is based on all of the public facts that are out there. So I I expect to see it on the second. All right. So, meanwhile, there was a hearing today on other matters. Uh, What uh, has been going on in the court other than this little uh, divorce court uh, subplot? 
Right. So today we had a hearing on Jeffrey Clark's motion to compel evidence. Uh, Jeffrey Clark has asked for the, the prosecution to turn over two categories of evidence. One is uh, communications uh, with White House counsel or the Biden White House uh, that that went on uh, or seemed to have gone on in during the investigation stage, during the special purpose grand jury stage of of the investigation. Uh, we know this because in the billing invoices that were attached as an exhibit in the Mike Roman motion to disqualify, Nathan Wade had indicated, you know, meetings with White House counsel or uh, meetings in D.C., like with White House and and kind of made those notes uh, that indicated that there were these meetings. And 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 so Jeffrey Clark's counsel saw that and said, you know, I want any kind of communications that uh, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office has had with the White House. Uh, the reason being that they they argue that it could be the basis for a selective prosecution claim. Uh, of course, it kind of fits in with the theme that some of these defendants have have gone with in in uh, their public uh, kind of narrative around their defense, which is that, you know, uh, this is some kind of coordinated effort either with the January 6th committee or the Biden administration to uh, uh, selectively prosecute them. Uh, so, so that's kind of the thinking there. Uh, and then the other category of evidence that Jeffrey Clark wants is correspondence with the federal government or the Justice Department as it relates to something called TUI requests. Uh, TUI requests are these requests that are typically required when a litigant is seeking the testimony of a uh, current or former for, or former uh, Justice Department official as it relates to their official duties. And typically, you know, you have to ask uh, for permission, basically, for them to testify as to some of those uh, issues. Uh, and then it can be authorized or it can be not authorized. Very often it is the Justice Department does not authorize uh, that testimony. Um, so that's kind of what is going on there, because it was reported in The New York Times that as it relates to Richard Donahue and Jeffrey Rosen, who are two of the former DOJ officials who are expected to be key witnesses as it relates to Jeffrey Clark's charges. Uh, it had been reported that uh, those two requests were uh, denied, I believe. Uh, I, I need to look back at that reporting, actually. But but it had it, it, there was reporting that there were these two requests for their testimony. Uh, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office has in this hearing, you know, stated that both of these categories of evidence related to communications that were more about kind of uh, logistics and and requests for testimony um, as it relates to either, you know, with uh, former White House counsel officials. They said that the White House has a kind of two-we-like process. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, with the Justice Department, they did not say, they would not really say whether the requests were uh, granted or denied. But but so that's kind of what was going on in that hearing. Judge McAfee ultimately just said, 
you know, as it relates to the White House counsel stuff, if you have any documents, I'll look at it in chambers and then I'll decide if if these if these should be turned over under Brady versus Maryland, which is a case that requires prosecutors to turn over exculpatory material. And then he also said as to the Tui letters question, you know, he would look at the law on it and decide whether these letters are something that even, you know, fall under Brady and that 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 would need to be turned over. So we kind of left it at that. It's uh, no real, you know, outcome or decision that he uh, made today, but just kind of things are going to they're going to work through all that. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back 
and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right. Meanwhile, Peter Navarro has been sentenced to uh, four months in jail. And I bet that the vast majority of people watching this have no memory of who Peter Navarro is or why he would be sentenced to four months in jail. So, Roger, uh, give us a refresher. Who the heck is Peter Navarro and why does anybody care that he's been sentenced to four months in jail? was a top advisor to Trump. I can't remember if he went all the way through or not, but he seemed to have information about uh, some information about January 6th. He wrote a book uh, later about that. And the January 6th committee uh, subpoenaed him. And unlike Bannon or Scavino or Meadows, who were also all uh, subpoenaed, he didn't even hire an attorney. He just said, executive privilege, no, I, I, uh, I understand this stuff. I'm completely immune. I was a top official uh, executive, uh, and, and uh, I, I'm immune from this stuff. It turns out it's more complicated than that. And uh, once he was indicted, he got an attorney. Um, but his case is really unique because no one was as arrogant as he was. And he uh, so he didn't show up at the deposition and he didn't produce any documents. You know, there are legitimate arguments about top officials. Um, there's uh, there are even legitimate claims they might not have to testify in certain certain circumstances, but usually those are officials who are still officials, and those are officials who are testifying about presidents who are still presidents, and usually the person invoking the executive privilege or presidential testimony privilege 
is the president, not an ex-president. And in this case, he hadn't even received a letter from the or anything from the president. The president had told him relating to an earlier subpoena having something to do with COVID, um, not to, uh, to to that he had that he wanted him not to cooperate to the extent possible. But there was no no communication with the president on this January sixth. Uh, so it's an extraordinary case. He he was convicted, uh, and uh, he he was given four months. He he spoke today at his sentencing. I wasn't there. I followed some uh, the bloggers, uh, including uh, Kyle again, Ch- Cheney, um, and he spoke against his uh, the advice of his attorney. By the way, his attorneys include familiar names to you all: Stan Woodward, who represents Nauta. Uh, John Irving, who represents de Oliveira, Rowley, who used to represent Trump. Anyway, um, so they did not want him to speak. He did. Uh, uh, he uh, said uh, he was sort of snide. Uh, he said, so all of this comes down to that. I didn't hire an attorney. I mean, I, and then he says something about I'm a, something about having gone to Harvard and uh, I can't remember the whole phrase. It was not necessarily very helpful. And um, but this is this was the result. Moral of the story. Uh, when you receive a congressional subpoena, do consult with counsel. Uh, don't ignore it completely. Um, these things can come back to bite you in the ass. Um, and when they come back to bite you in the ass, uh, follow the advice of your attorney that you should have hired about whether to annoy the court. All right, let's check in on Judge Eileen Cannon, who has uh, not had an especially busy week, but one that we should uh, check in on. What's she been up to? Well, uh, you know, we're still working on this SEPA Section 4 business, um, which was originally set to be settled sometime last October. She's uh, having an ex-party proceeding with the government uh, next Wednesday. She's going to have a two-day hearing February 12th through 13th. This is, uh, I've explained before, I'll just very briefly, uh, uh, there's some additional materials the government thinks Trump is entitled to classified. Uh, They want to give him some of it, but redact um, others or make substitutions because it's ultra sensitive. And so, and the SEPA uh, procedures allow for this. Uh, Usually it's done ex parte. Trump wants to be involved somehow, uh, have his attorneys at least see the uh, materials and and help the judge decide whether some of it sh- is should be turned over, more of it should be turned over. And um, the judge has not yet decided on uh, whether to give any access to um, uh, Trump's attorneys. And um, uh, he made a similar motion in the Washington case, and uh, Chutkin denied it. But um, that's where that stands. 
there was an interesting thing that doesn't really relate to her. It relates to Trump. You might remember last week we mentioned that Trump had filed his motions to compel, and a lot of the motions to compel were blacked out, redacted. And so with the motion to compel, uh, they filed a motion to unseal. The government responded to that, and and they said, you know, there are parts we can unseal, but we we want to keep a lot of it redacted because um, it would reveal witnesses and this and that. The reply was sort of strange. It says, we take no position on what the government wants to do. And then the press coalition uh, submitted a motion saying that they wanted to support basically Trump's motion to unseal. And Trump replied to the press coalition saying he opposes their motion. Which was in support of his motion. Exactly. Because they didn't provide Trump with sufficient time to meet and confer. You know, when you file a motion, you're supposed to uh, check with the other side to see if it's contested. And there's no limit. It has to be a reasonable effort. And so on a Friday at 2 p.m., they approached Trump, said, can you get back to us over the weekend or in any event before 11 a.m.? So the government got back to them by then. Trump didn't. Then they filed their motion. And Trump is saying, nope, that wasn't a reasonable enough time. And he's doing this with a motion that seems to support his motion. It's it's very, I mean, it's very odd. It could mean they 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 just it's another stalling thing, or maybe they've reconsidered whether they really do want everything unsealed. But you might remember this happened with great success back in July when the government first tried to uh, approach them July 12th with a protective order uh, relating to SEPA materials, classified documents. And they wouldn't give a straight answer. And finally, the government filed the a special counsel filed the motion and Trump objected um, because of the lack of sufficient time to meet and confer and Cannon agreed. And th- we ended up not getting a protective motion order in place for another two months. So uh, I don't know what's happening here. It's, 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 it's another odd thing. And none of these odd things that, uh, have are seeming to move the ball on scheduling, right? There, we're still just plodding along at at a, a pace until March, when we will revisit the the May twenty fifth trial date. Yes, I think it's March first that uh, there will be a hearing, and she will on on whether to put off the trial date, and and that's when presumably the formal decision will be made. All right. Josh asks, uh, in the context of the Eugene Carroll defamation trial, 
Is Alina Haba as incompetent as some reporting makes it sound? Uh, why didn't Trump just ignore this trial? It seems not to be the best publicity for him. So these are two separate questions. And I will say that, you know, just as a preliminary matter, none of us has been in the courtroom on this trial. And so uh, I don't think we're in a great position to evaluate whether she is quite as incompetent as the reporting makes it sound, because we don't have the baseline of our actual judgment separate from the reporting as to uh, what her competence level is. It does look like she really does not have a basic understanding of the rules of civil procedure in New York. Uh, and the judge has kept uh, badgering her about that or correcting her on that. Uh, she also seems to, you know, there, there does seem to be a lot that she doesn't know. She is not a particularly experienced trial lawyer. And she also, in her defense, has a completely impossible client, uh, which is to say, you know, I, I don't care if your lawyer is Edward Bennett Williams, if you're sitting there making snide remarks about the judge and uh, and commenting on jurors. I mean, you, you're doing your own work at that point, uh, making sure the court is as hostile to you as possible. And so I'm not, uh, you know, she she may not be doing a great job as a as a lawyer, but she's got a terrible client um, in addition to that. So um, why did Trump not ignore this trial? This is an interesting question. Not sure if either of you have thoughts on this, but I will just say, I, I think, first of all, Trump mostly doesn't default things. He does tend to be represented. Uh, he does tend to use cases to go on the offense and attack people. And he clearly thinks he gets some benefit out of the defense or his presence in the courtroom. He's not merely not ignoring it. He's showing up himself. And I assume that this is uh, a function of his view of the benefit he gets from it in the political arena. He certainly isn't doing himself any favors in the court. Do either of you have thoughts on this? When a client wants to speak, you know, you can argue with him all you want in private, but it, it really is ultimately his decision or her decision. And, you know, even in criminal cases, people make that decision against what the defense lawyer recommends. And um, I think that actually, you know, they got through this in a much more uneventful way than uh, in front of Angoron, uh, which was, of course, a bench trial. Um, you know, if it had careered out of control in a jury trial, I, I do know Judge Kaplan. I have seen him in other cases, and he has he is a whip-smart guy with a very short fuse, and um, they did avert disaster in that respect. You know, he would not uh, have put up with much. Um, you might remember uh, there was a very Trump-like guy who uh, is sort of, he's still sort of a hero to the left named Steve Donziger. He won that 
uh, uh, $23 billion originally, $9 billion uh, verdict in Ecuador relating to oil spills. And, um, but it turned out that uh, it, it was later adjudicated that uh, it had been obtained through various kinds of fraud, perhaps bribery as well. And um, in, the, in the federal, in the U.S. court, it was Kaplan, and he eventually held that guy in criminal contempt. And um, uh, when the Southern District refused to decline prosecution, he appointed a private uh, prosecutor who got a conviction in front of a different judge um, and uh, sentenced him to six months. I think he did a lot of it in his apartment because of COVID. Anyway, this is somebody who does not really brook much uh, foolishness. And I think they got through it. And, I, you know, maybe give Alina Habab some credit. Maybe she talked to him in private about who this person was. I don't know. So uh, it wasn't the disaster it could have been. The rest seems to be calculations that are either political or uh, have to do with personality disorders. And they're beyond my uh, scope in either event. Yeah, I will just say I have also watched uh, Judge Kaplan over the years, and uh, uh, he is, among other things, a very fine uh, and scholarly judge. Uh, he writes good opinions. He's a very serious guy. Uh, he is not a um, uh, he is not an Eileen Cannon in his tolerance for the antics of uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Jared asks, I know it's basically impossible under this Congress, but could Congress theoretically use its power over court jurisdiction to mandate that federal courts expedite cases involving presidents, members of Congress or other officers when the cases pertained to act, pertain to activities alleged to have occurred while in office? Um, short answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mostly court management issues are left to the courts, but Congress does uh, set up certain specialized procedures for certain types of appeals. For example, appeals under the Voting Rights Act uh, are handled differently from appeals in other cases. Various uh, um, cases get tried in front of types of three-judge panels. So Congress could theoretically set up some procedure like this. The courts don't love it when Congress uh, kind of micromanages them like that, and um, you might get some pushback. It's pretty rare for the court. For I can't think of an example of Congress saying, privilege this type of criminal case over this type in your day-to-day -day case management. Uh, so I would think it wouldn't be the kind of thing that Congress would typically do, but I don't see why they couldn't do it. All right, next question. Uh, this one is clearly for Anna. How might removing one or both of Willis or Wade from the prosecution of the Georgia RICO case uh, affect the case? Would it cause delay, dismissal? Yeah, so uh, assume the worst for uh, for Fonnie Willis and and uh, and Mr. Wade. What would be the consequences for the case? 
Yeah. So if they're disqualified, there is Georgia precedent that says that that disqualification imputes to the district attorney's entire office. So it wouldn't just be that, you know, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade are thrown off the case and then their deputies can continue the prosecution. It would mean that the entire office, if Fonnie Willis is is thrown off the case, uh, would be barred from from continuing with the prosecution. But it doesn't mean that the case goes away. Uh, I have no reason to think that the, you know, uh, alleged improper relationship or alleged improper financial benefit would lead to dismissal. Although Mike Roman does have a separate argument that is about, you know, the appointment power and, and whether that should lead to the dismissal. And we don't need to get into that right now, but I am a little bit skeptical that that uh, will be something taken up by judge McAfee, but as to this disqualification, under Georgia statute, what happens if they are disqualified, then the office is disqualified, then it goes to the prosecuting attorneys, uh, a council of Georgia, the there's a guy who's the you know executive director of that council, his name is Pete Scandalakis. Uh, and he is the guy who will decide uh, who should be the person who takes the case. Um, it will be assigned to another district attorney's office, probably one that has a similar you know, capacity and, and uh, ability as the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Uh, Andrew Fleischman, for example, has suggested that the DeKalb uh, County uh, prosecutor would be someone who would be an ideal uh, candidate to take on the case. It also, though, could be the case that a private attorney is appointed to take over the case. Uh, so I, some things that have been thrown out by folks uh, has has been maybe uh, John Floyd, who is currently a special prosecutor and is a RICO expert, could be appointed to take over the case because he's already worked on it. He's technically not a part of the district attorney's office because he is a special prosecutor and, a, and in private practice. Uh, or someone like Anna Cross, who is one of the other special prosecutors, I would need to look in to see if there's any like weird rules about those folks being disqualified from then being appointed once the prosecuting attorney's counsel gets involved. Um, but that is just, you know, one idea that I've seen thrown out there, which uh, I think would be a more ideal situation if they are disqualified, because then you have at least two people or one person continuing on, all of which is to say that this is certainly if they are disqualified, it would almost certainly lead to delay. Uh, I can't say how long. It kind of depends on the circumstances. But I will say, you know, Bonnie Willis was disqualified from the Burt Jones investigation in the summer of last year. So over a year ago. And the prosecuting attorney's counsel has still not appointed anyone to take over that investigation or assigned it to a different a district attorney's office. So if that delay tells you anything, then it could be quite a while before there's anyone assigned. Um, maybe there are special circumstances there, though, and, and this is a bit different since it's an already indicted case. Uh, but I, I certainly would expect uh, quite a delay. Um, and I at this point, I'm very, very doubtful. I was already doubtful that this case would go to trial before the election, but 
I am especially doubtful of that now. I will just say, if you uh, have a name like Scandalakis, uh, it is almost incumbent upon you to go into the business of managing other people's scandals um, and figuring out who the lawyers who should replace uh, scandal uh, disqualified lawyers are. Murray asks a question with Roger's name all over it. Are presidential electors in any way responsible for complying with the 14th Amendment, Section 3, either civilly or criminally? Could an election get a pre-enforcement review of potential harms they might face? Could an elector, by casting a vote in the Electoral College for Trump in violation of the 14th Amendment or acting as a faithless elector? So I take this to mean... Do the electors have any responsibility under their own oath to say, hey, wait a minute, whatever, you may not be qualified to be president under the 14th Amendment. And is there any enforcement mechanism for that? I'm pretty sure there's no enforcement mechanism for that. I'm almost certain that no one knows the answer to your first question, which is, you know, can they, ref, you know, refuse to vote for the person they're bound to because of they feel that he's disqualified. The other, uh, this is definitely something that people, part of what people are afraid of. Uh, another thing they're afraid of is, uh, regardless, uh, if they do, if the electors do, you know, follow their sort of uh, their small d duty, if they 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 vote the way their slate is supposed to be committed, then the question becomes: What happens on January sixth? Will Congress? Will there be objections by both houses uh, to these? Uh, votes for Trump on their view that he's disqualified, um, which and of course, the Electoral Count Act was amended uh, last year to change the uh, the bases the, that you can refuse uh, that, for which you can bring an objection. But I think it's pretty uh, there's a very lively likelihood that um congressman could do that. And that's one reason that I mentioned that I think section, the argument that section three doesn't apply to presidents has become such an important one. There are other ways to get rid of the Colorado case and even other ways to get rid of all the litigation. Like if you say section three, uh, isn't self-executing or, uh, so Congress has to enact enabling legislation first. That doesn't mean he's qualified. It means no one yet is in a position to say whether he's qualified or not. And so when you get to January 6th, the congressman can say, well, we're in a position. Maybe no judge is in a position, but we're in a position. And it's obvious he's or, you know, they can say what they make the decision they want. And actually, 
Tillman and Blackman argue in their amicus brief. They make two arguments. They make they one argument is Section three doesn't apply to presidents. The other is Section three is not self-executing. But they tell the court, "You please don't just rule on three. I mean, on on the self-executing. You really have to say." that section three doesn't apply because otherwise you won't solve this problem of what happens on January 6th, 2025, because uh, the the self-executing question um, leaves this open to Congress. If, if the court says section three doesn't apply to presidents, then it does seem decided. All right. Last question from anonymous attendee regarding the 14th Amendment, Section 3, could saying it is Congress's problem to remove any disqualification be a valid way out, at least for the SCOTUS? Congress can do what it wants. Colorado can do what it wants. States select electors in different ways already. So I've addressed this in the past. I think the, the Section 3 does seem to be negatively self-executing. That is, it provides for Congress to get involved to undo the uh, the disability. Uh, it does not, by its terms anyway, seem to require Congress' involvement to put it in in the first place. And uh, we've had questions in the past about whether uh, you know Congress could make a statement to the Supreme Court by, say, holding a vote to remove the disability. Chuck Schumer would call the Senate and have a vote. Presumably, you wouldn't get two-thirds. Uh, you would thereby vote it down, and then you would have the argument before the Supreme Court, look, Congress uh, uh, voted on whether to remove the disability and decided not to. Um, I think it's a bit of a parlor trick, honestly, but it's not a bad parlor trick. And I um, and I do think that, you know, the more attention the Supreme Court pays to the text, specifically the removal of disqualification uh, portion of the text, the more it looks like that the self-execute that that the assumption is that there is a self-execution and that Congress's involvement would not be to execute, but but to remove uh, the disability that the provision in, imposes itself. Uh, that's my thought on on this question. Uh, Roger, Anna, if either of you have others, feel free. No, I think that does it. All right. We are going to leave it there, folks. We will be back next week. Maybe there will be there will be more briefs. Maybe there will be a DC circuit ruling. Maybe Eileen Cannon will have uh, actually done something. Um, and we will uh, certainly by a week from now, uh, I think we will probably have a brief from Fonnie Willis. Um, although it might not have come in by the time we record. Uh, so we will be back then from the, uh, 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 Ukrainian uh, library. I'm Benjamin Wittes from bed in some hotel room. It's Roger Parloff. And from Salon G in the Solus Conference Center, 
Uh, Anna Bauer, thank you all for joining us today. Thanks, everyone. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on our website, lawfaremedia.org support. That single act will also enable you to pose questions to our panel and to become part of our conversation by joining our Zoom webinar which is available only to our material supporters. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patia, and your audio engineer this episode was the one, the only Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Our music was, once again, performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.